<laughs> okay, here we go. Okay. So, um, welcome David uh, Alkinson and um, Holly Monahan. Um, I'm going to talk to David for uh, and ask him a few questions before we start into about the Nick Menza documentary. Um, David, how are you doing today? I am well. Good, actually. Um, so I, I'm going to ask you a couple questions. Who were your um, influences growing up? Certainly Kiss, right off the bat. Um, you know, then from there, probably into kind of, you know, I'm an American hard rock kid, right? So like Van Halen, Boston, Aerosmith, all that kind of stuff. And then, um, you know, Cheap Trick, of course, um, Stars, Angel. I kind of got into the Casablanca era of bands um and you know then from there you know when in my bands and stuff i started covering you know zeppelin and bad company and montrose and all that kind of stuff and uh, what, what about you know then once judas what's yeah then what you know once judas priest unleashed and these came out you know what i mean that right. that that was a serious arc <laughs> to the left and uh because that introduced me to metal you know then, then from there it was you know then iron maiden and venom and tank and you know motorhead uh, you know, Hammersmith, No Sleep for Hammersmith and Ace of Spades and Def Leppard on through the night. And, you know, then that took me down down the road of the new wave of British heavy metal. Scorpions so, and stuff, too. I'm Canadian, so I have to ask you this question. Um, who are you? Did you have any Canadian band influences like uh, Rush or? Um... For sure, Rush. Yeah, 100 percent Rush. And it's funny. I remember when the Loverboy record came out. <laughs> that was great. You know, working for the weekend. Or what was it? Turn Me Loose. You know, that had like a great yeah. bass intro. Um, and a lot of cover bands in Minnesota. Because, you know, that was the the gig in, where I grew up in the Midwest. You know, you'd, right. you'd play the ballrooms and the bars. You'd do four 45-minute sets a night from 9 p.m. till 1 a.m. So I did a ton of that stuff growing up. Um, so for sure that. And then... You know, then um, I, you know, I started to like sword, of course, and you know, then when MTV came along, there was like honeymoon suites and a bunch of other wow. stuff, you know, that came along. Yeah. Um, you know, and I like Nickelback. A Silver Side Up is probably my favorite record of theirs. I like that record a lot, actually. I think that's very cool. Yeah, awesome. So, is it true you started out as a guitarist and then switched to being a bass player? I, I... No. No, as no. opposite, actually. I started okay. as a bass player. Yep, I started as a bass player. In fact, I remember, you know, uh, well, look, I started on tenor. No, look. Right? My mother's Wurlitzer organ. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then sax, tenor saxophone. Then I got the bass. Uh, and then I then I started playing guitar about a year after that. I started playing guitar. So, um, you know, I like it because guitar is easier to write rock songs with you know sometimes i'll write something on guitar take it to bass sometimes i write something on bass and take it over to the guitar you know and and it's just you know so you can create on any instrument i've written i've written battle riffs on my piano you know and then you turn them wow. on the guitar like oh that's pretty cool that works you know so sometimes just whatever instrument you create on is almost irrelevant you know so let's talk about your new new band there that you have the the, the lucid yes. um Who's all in that, and how did that go about? Like, what was the process um, of um, hiring these um, other musicians to? Sure. So Mike Keller from um, uh, Fear Factory and Raven uh, plays drums in it and also produced it. Drew Fortier, who had a stint with, um, he's played with uh, Stephen Chereau from um, Kick Tracy. Um, they okay. had a thing together. He's uh, played a little bit with Chuck Mosley, who was uh, the first singer from Faith and More. 
and also with Bang Tango. So he's had a you know handful of different things. And then um, uh, Vin uh, Dombrowski from uh, Sponge, the singer of Sponge, is okay. uh, fronting the band. Yeah. And so Drew and Mike started it. Then they brought me in. And then around that same time, uh, hit up Vin about coming in and, and he, he came on board. And so, yeah, then it just kind of fell together from there. It started last summer, 2020, is um, where it kind of came in. And I think Drew had a lot of the songs or some of the riffs. A few of the ideas had been kind of lingering around from other things as records right. tend to be you know we've all got a pile of stuff and you just yeah here and there you just got it everywhere and yeah put the pieces together go, yeah you kind of go these are the guys that these riffs work with you know or, and like the you know this pile of songs i'm going to take over there to work with those guys i mean that's i think how you know i think when you become a professional that's you sort of segregate things you know um you know to know who who it's going to work with you don't kind of put the square peg in the round hole if you will you know you kind of find the the right setting for your for your material right so the band just released an, uh, an album there what was the last week that they that yeah it october out? 15th it came out yep yep so uh digitally everywhere um we're actually i think i'm gonna probably we're talking about maybe pipelining it in through the emp uh channels in, in the new year you know we just kind of did a did the digital launch and then um right. The lucidofficial.com, I think, is the site where you can actually do some. Pre we had to put up some pre orders and stuff. But we have some tour dates coming up, I think, in May and then in Europe later in, in 2022. Um, we're, you know, going to put it through some, you know, proper distribution channels into the stores and stuff. Nice. I'm a big fan of vinyl, so hopefully there's some vinyl. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, the vinyl. And actually, Vin helped us find a vinyl uh, uh, manufacturer who, um, can get it done quicker you know vinyl can be six to nine months in fact i was just talking to someone earlier today it's like you know if you want to invest get your cryptocurrency and get all that nouveau shit out of the way and then like invest in a vinyl factory <laughs> because vinyl no, it's, it's, everybody i mean booming. sony universal everybody's behind you know it takes months to get vinyl done because of the, the demand and now they have all these box sets too that everybody's producing so. totally yeah so if you got any extra money laying around, like, I don't know, build a vinyl manufacturing plant. Okay. <laughs> we could use one. So what's going on with the Revive Combat Records? I know I was following on uh, Twitter, but I haven't really heard much about um, what's going on with the label right now. Is it on hold or? No, it, it's still sitting there. I mean, we pipelined a ton of records, you know. Uh, we had a lot of releases kind of through 2020. Um, the final stuff was Ellis and No Cover. That was kind of the final product that we put in. Right. Um, and in 2021, just because I got busy writing other records and creating other stuff, I wasn't that focused on putting that much stuff out. I've got, there's quite a few titles in there right now. Um, and then, you know, now, I, and then I just, I want to be more selective about it. You know, there's a lot of stuff that we put in there. Right. Um, and then, you know, and that's all doing fine, but there's, I want to just kind of be a little more selective about what I'm putting in there. Like, again, you know, and looking at, I'll lose it and go, okay, look, there's, we might need mm -hmm. this bigger sort of pipeline for that so uh, now i have that in place you know with distribution so i've got that there um just talking to somebody else about another record as well um and i might be able to help them out with that and, you know put nice. some put put that in there so i kind of want to use it as a bit more of um you know just kind of what i started it for which is when when i when it, there's a need i can have a solution to help help myself or help you know things that i work on 
like the Lewis right. or help friends out if they need to get stuff out into bigger outlets. I think the Killer Dwarfs are on the label, if I'm not mistaken, and they're Canadians. Yes. Yep, yep, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, again, like you said, vinyl's a big thing, so vinyl usually blows through pretty quick. That sells very quickly in the stores. You know, CDs, eh, some. Digital, of course, just does its thing now because everybody's getting stuff on Spotify and iTunes and YouTube and that. So what's going on with Metal Allegiance? Is, is, is that still uh, um, is that still going on? Uh, like I haven't heard it much. It is. Stuff. Those guys did a show in the East Coast uh, about a month ago. They did something out of Long Island. I wasn't part of it um, because you know there's some things we realize when we work West Coast. I'm usually part of it when it's East right. Coast. Often I'm not. Um, and you know as we've expanded the community, you know there's kind of the four the core four right as we called it. You know me, Mangy, Skullnick, and Portnoy. Right. Uh, for the recording aspect of it. But then when it comes to performing live, you know, that's kind of a much wider circle to be more inclusive to people that are available. And I think that's part of the fun of it is is changing it up to let more people be involved in it for the live performance. Right. I, I really liked it when I like so many of um, you know, my favorite bands growing up and they're all like in one group. It's like, holy frick, how you know, yeah. this is crazy. Know. It is but it, it's cool. a hard solo for some reason, but the, it's... um. You know, I really enjoy. It. I, I like. I, I've never seen you guys come up to Canada, but hopefully in the future, the. You know, we were talking about it. It's a hard thing to tour because it's expensive because you've got uh-huh. a lot of moving parts. You know, again, if it's only four guys, no metal allegiance, but it's it needs six and seven and eight people. You know, involved right. in it, and then and then, and that's a lot. You know, it's a lot of people. It's you're you know there's gear and crew and you know it's just expenses to go with it um and especially if you're going to go to canada i know we were talking about it there do was that falls or do, do do buffalo and, and then i'll come and I know, see it's sneak over the border i know we, we yeah. had a plan to do something like that and um for whatever reason it just it did it we couldn't follow through on it and you know that's the other thing too is you know then all of a sudden skullnick could be like oh i got a testament run and <laughs> you know one of us will you know mike's in four bands and you know so something comes up and all of a yeah it's so hard to everybody get together yeah. at once so it's it's a lot of work that's why we kind of decided look let's do do more event-based things you know that we can sort of create an event and hoopla and people can come to it it's it's hard to tour right. we've done some touring with it and it's it just it has its challenges you know because of all the moving parts so i see you have um you're involved with this documentary with the the life of um, nick menza yeah. um how did that go about? Like, how did you get involved? And um, how's it going? Like, I, I, I know the I heard about it and got uh, GoFundMe. Or it's not GoFundMe. It's, yeah. um, well, should we bring our our, uh, our hostess yes. with the mostest, Holly, in? Because <laughs> she can probably talk more to it. Uh, I don't want to leave her <laughs> sitting on the side too long. But, you know, um, Nick's uh, manager, or who was managing him when he was when he was still with us, uh, Rob, right. Robert Bulger, who I've known for a bunch of years. Uh, he had reached out to me. He's kind of, we've always been in touch over the years. And, and so he reached out and he looped me into an email to do an introduction with Holly. And Holly is the producer. Um, they mostly came to me about narrating it, which I said, sure. Right. Um, I've narrated a handful of films and documentaries and things. So I, I know how to do it. Um, and of course, the story of Nick. And then, you know, we talked about me kind of co-producing, you know, sort of and in my opinion, my co again, Holly's the producer. She's the one who's the overseer of the thing. My thing right. is to just kind of come in and help pull some bits and pieces together, maybe a person or two for some interviewing, kind of help right. streamline the story. Because, you know, obviously I, I lived probably a dozen years on the road with Nick, a couple years of tech. 
uh, in right. the late 80s and then by, you know, 89 uh, into 90 when he became a full-fledged, you know, Megadeth band member um, through the through the 90s and stuff. So we spent a lot of time together. In fact, today I was just talking to a drum tech of his on the phone and, and we were just reliving stories and, um, and you know, funny stuff about Nick and... Um, and, you know, it's it's interesting. Nick had a really different perspective because he started with the crew. You know, right. he's always a musician. There's a drummer and a player, but he took a crew gig because um, mm-hmm. our sound man for Megadeth had hired him, uh, brought him in. And uh, and then along with him came his friend, John Goodwin, and they were in a band called Von Skeletor together out in L.A. And they played in bands together and stuff. So, right. you know, uh, John's been, um, you know, um, been able to give a lot of great inputs and you know so there's a lot of people there's there's many narratives here and i think the main trick with this is to focus the narrative into into one story because there's right. people that have been childhood friends musician friends obviously his family has right. a has a has obviously a perspective on it and then you know me as being a band member with him i've got a perspective that i think um can help keep it sort of consistent with what the fans grew up with. Um, so a lot of it, I think, is just kind of pulling all these pieces together. And and then it's up to Holly to, to turn it into a movie. <laughs> She's got all the dirty work to do. So, um, Holly, what, when do you have the, do you have a release date set for this uh, documentary at all? We're hoping to get it released within the next year. That's the goal. We don't have a hard and fast date yet. Um, it's been in the works for a while. It it was actually started before I came into the mix. About I've been in around a year doing some pre-production. Of course, coronavirus has set things back and things like that. But um, um, it's been in the works for a while. Rob has been working on it. Um, there was another film crew that was attached, but then they, they kind of fell off somehow. And then I came in, I came in when we did a um, music video. I do a lot of music video work for the band Byzantine and they did a cover of Later of Souls about a year ago. And um, I did that music video. And what we did is we used um, footage from Nick in the studio from 2014. And we mixed that together with footage that I shot with Byzantine and re-recorded their parts and used his drum parts and his video and made a music video out of it. So that's how I got involved with the documentary. The the family and Rob liked that music video and they're like, Hey, you want to do the documentary? I'm like, sure. I've done a lot of short film work and a feature film that I just released. So yeah, it's, it's been a cool journey so far. And, and I just really, my goal for this is to make something nice for the family. So. Yeah, that's that's very nice. It's a very nice tribute to uh, Nick. He was an amazing drummer, and I read his um, autobiography, and yeah, it's, um, it's an amazing guy he was. So, uh, David, do you have any special memories um, with Nick? Like, does anything that pops out that you remember most about him? And well, most of it you're gonna have to wait and watch the film. <laughs> okay. But no, oh, I'm definitely but, uh, gonna watch. Like, obviously, there's, you know, like I said, about 12 years of memories. You know, probably one of my first ones, and I think I've told this story before, uh, is I remember we we were doing some pre-production. What, what a pre-production? We we're doing some shows um, before. Uh, it was in December, like kind of late November, early December of 1980. Seven. Uh, we had the so far so good. So what record was being mixed? Right. Um, and in fact, on the ba- one of the shows we played was up in Tacoma, and the photos on the back of the record are from that show from Tacoma. So it's from this little run of dates that we did. But the very first show we did, I think, was in Riverside, at mm-hmm. a 
kind of a big club. And I remember Dave was stuck in traffic. He couldn't get there in time for the sound check. So me and Chuck Beeler and Jeff Young uh, went ahead with the sound check. And Nick, who's I think it was his first gig, he just got hired as the drum tech. And, you know, Nick was pretty ballsy. So he like walks up with sunglasses on, steps up to the mic and starts singing peace cells. No, yeah, peace cells. And, um, and I just looked at him and I went, man, that guy's got some freaking balls to be stepping into Dave's zone. If Dave walks in the door and sees some other guy singing on his mic, he's going to freaking kick his ass. And he's the new guy, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, but it's, it, I think that right there from the gate just defined Nick, you know? He was he wasn't he wasn't rebelliously defiant for that reason. He just would walk up to stuff and have no fear. You know what I mean? And he would just do it for all the right reasons, you know? And yeah, um in the book he had a lot of, he did a lot of joking around and stuff like that. He did a lot and, of joke you know, and the thing of it is, and this is the this is the strangest thing, and I always I, and it's funny, I was talking to a guy just today about it. And he'll probably tell the story in the movie. Um, you know, when I inducted Nick into the Heavy Metal Hall of Fame a couple of years ago during NAM, you know, his mm-hmm. uh, his dad, Don, and his mom, Rose, were there and his sister, Danya. And, and I told this story and it was kind of a little weird to tell it in front of them because this is his family, of course. But Nick always used to say, you know, uh, fuck you guys, I'm going to fucking blow up on stage jamming and I'll <laughs> fucking go. Out. You know, he would always say it and he'd usually say it because he's just to kind of want to get a rise out of everybody and get a laugh, you know. But it was like, you know, when I'll never forget when Dave called me around the dystopia tour, we were in Buffalo, no, Albany, um, playing this rock and derby gig. And he called me like four in the morning and he goes, dude, Nick died. And he was very upset, you know, and, and as, as you know, I was then too, I was like, holy shit, are you kidding me? What happened? You know, no one really knew. We didn't have all the, the components yet. And it would be revealed within the next couple hours, you know, he died on stage at the baked potato playing with Chris Boland's band home. And, and, um, you know, and, and it was like, it happened, you know, on stage and, and, you know, as, as sort of, uh, obviously shocking as it was, there's a part of it, you just go, Son of a bitch, he fucking did it. You know, what I mean, like mm-hmm. he, he did it. He like total the total rock star move, right? right? Like just doing what he loved in front of his fans, behind his mm-hmm. drum kit. Nick was all about his drums. I mean, he was right. that guy. You know, you meet guys that play drums, and then you got you meet guys that just live and breathe their instrument, and and in this case, his drums. And that was Nick. And, um, you know, for Nick to just be sort of memorialized like that reality of, of right. he died the way he lived. Um, That's kind of the way you want to you do. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, like we're all going to die. So the dying right. is not tragic. It's it really isn't like spoiler alert. We're all going to leave the planet. You know what I mean? So, like, get your shit together. Right. You're one day you're going to be out of here. Right. So that dying isn't the it's sad because we miss him. But that's not the tragedy. We're all going to die. And mm-hmm. so in my in a lot of ways, him dying on stage the way he did at a gig, having fun. And Chris Bowen gave me kind of a blow by, you know, play by play, blow by blow of the of the night a couple of years ago. Um, and it's like talking to him is it sounds like he was having the time of his life. Um, yeah. Just kicking ass, playing drums. Chris said he was playing one of the best gigs he, that he'd ever had. Um, it's crazy. Fun, joking around. So when I heard that, I'm just like, you know, how awesome is that? You know, he he wasn't drugged out, you know, like a lot of tragedy stories you hear. Oh, the guy, you know, died on the toilet or, you know, and, and those are what they are. But it's like to hear that Nick was having fun. He was joking, rocking, getting ready to jam the next tune and bang, 
I'm out. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just crazy. If you knew Nick, it's so Nick, you know, and it's, and I think there's, there's a celebration in that, that I think, you know, Holly's pulling all these pieces together and, and that, and, 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 and honestly, like she said, for, for his family, I think, you know, they deserve to just have this kind of nice package sort of, you know, bow tie wrapped for them and just say, you know, right. you know, we all love Nick, everybody around the world. We love the guy and kind of here's, here's, uh, you know, sort of a, uh, just a final farewell from all of us. That's, I think, what's well, Holly, intention. how do fans, how do fans um, contact, like get involved in this project? Is, is there like a GoFundMe or a pledge? Um, some kind of, um, yeah, yeah, there's an Indiegogo, yeah, there's, there's an Indiegogo campaign that we, we've got for about another okay. week. So um, it's This Was My Life. You can find it on um, Indiegogo, like I said, or you can go to thiswasmylifefilm.com. There's information there as well. And please support it because, as you, as you can imagine, these things, they take time. They're not cheap. Just, you know, no one's, no, so, one's, no one's walking out of this making a ton of money. This isn't a Spielberg production, you know, but we wanted to, we're making a great quality product and we're taking the time and doing everything right to do that. But it just, you know, just the amount of time that it takes to, to make something like this. So, yeah, there's some pretty cool things in there that people can be, be part of if they want to support it. And yeah, just, it's just, it's for the love of Nick and just supporting it, you know. Some t-shirts and some signed drumsticks and stuff like that, I believe. And, and um, yeah. And even... One of these is coming up. Nice. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, well, we're doing a cool thing. We actually, there's some tracks. In fact, I'll tell you this because we're going to put it up on the Go Indiegogo on the okay. crowdfunding thing is that, you know, there's some drum tracks that Nick has and a few of us are writing some new material over those tracks. So it's kind of mm -hmm. like having a band with Nick Postumus. Uh, and mm -hmm. so we're putting some new riffs and new stuff down. Um, you know, the intention is for that stuff to end up in the movie. Um, and you know a fun way as soon as i heard him i went oh my god we should totally go in the studio and like write new stuff over these right and these are new <laughs> original tracks of nick's um they're not not you know from existing songs and stuff so we can do whatever we want with it and just you know cut them up and we had one guy uh from greece has already sent some stuff back i'm gonna go in this week and start working on stuff so we're just calling up a bunch of people in the neighborhood to just here here's nick right away mm -hmm. you know just start writing and putting stuff down so even if they're just riffs and bumper cues and stuff for the movie so um this bass is being used for that so nice bid on that people bid on that <laughs> yeah so. yeah okay um thank you for coming on holly um i just have a few more questions uh, for david um just going to ask him a few more and then we're going to we're going to finish this interview um what was your favorite album to play on for megadeth uh, david you have a particular one that you were you know there, you know it's funny the 13 album was super fun um it's probably that one album that um you know we had we only had about 10 weeks to to uh, write it record it mix it master it and then it had to be turned into roadrunner because we were getting ready to go do more big four shows and we did the mayhem right. energy that monster or uh rockstar energy, energy drink tour with uh, disturbed and god smack and that stuff so uh, there's a thing when there's time, when there's, when you're kind of pressure cooked, it's gotta be done, you know? And, and I think it's a, a cool right. album. I like the 13 album. Um, nice. I wrote a lot of my parts and stuff right here in my office. And then I went over to, to, uh, the studio that was in, in Fallbrook at the time. 
um, and just sat down with Johnny K and plugged and played. And he was like, let's just do three takes of every song and move on to the next one. It was fast and furious and super fun. Um, the cryptic writings record was a lot of fun. You know, it's fun right. to work in Nashville at that time. Um, it was a, it was a cool record. That was a great record to work on with Nick. Quite honestly, he had some great, great stuff going on on that record. So right. those are, those are a couple of them that were, you know, that stand out in my mind. So is it true, like I, I, heard, I heard this, did you get offered the position of bass player in Metallica after Cliff Burton passed away? Um, they never offered it to me. They never offered it to me. But I you mean, were... There was, yeah, there was, you know, there was a conversation, it would have been during the World Needs a Heroes after Jason quit, you know, that there was kind of a short list, but I never did get, I never did get the call. And the Metallica guys right. are friends, I mean, they're, you know, we're, we're buddies, you know, so um and they um and there was just a there was it was just kind of a random backstage thing you know Lars happened to be backstage I think it was the Kaiser was it the Kaiser Auditorium in Oakland we were playing I think with Motorhead or something and you know it was it was a sad moment because it was right after uh the bus accident happened with Cliff and um you know there was just a just a quick exchange it was no formal offer there there it wasn't even a serious discussion to be honest with you about it it was just Kind of, what are you guys going to do? No, next? I just wanted to you clear know, that up. Yeah, so what's, yeah, what's what's going on next? But yeah, no, I, they've never formally approached me and said, "Hey, do you want a job in, in Metallica?" It's, you know, it's okay, uh, they you. they knew I was gainfully employed, and you know, I don't, I'm sure they didn't want to mm. break up our band, and you know, we had just gotten signed to Pete to Capitol okay. Records at the time, so you know, it's all good. So. What are your thoughts of the Rock Hall? And do you ever see a day when bands like Megadeth and Slayer might get inducted? Like, I, I'm i always pushing for metal bands to get in the Rock Hall, and it just seems like a struggle. It seems like fans don't even care. Iron Maiden and Judas Priest were both I know. nominated, and it's just like, you know, how here, can these here's bands the funny thing. Out of all the people, I'm probably most supportive of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and here's why. <laughs> because I'm already oh, in it. Well, here's why, because I'm already in it, uh, and here's how. I did not because of I walked in and got inducted, but, you know, in the, the late 90s, we did a big auction on Megadeth.com, and we sold off a ton of gear that we had at, at our at a storage unit here in, in Arizona when the band was based here at that time. Right. And a fan bought pretty much a bunch of my Jackson basses that I had from the early days. They bought some BC Riches. So the BC Rich bass I used in the Peace Sells video that's got the, the Mockingbird and it's got the fighter jet on it, a fan bought it. Um, mm -hmm. and actually I think Dave McRobb, who runs the social media or the fan club with Megadeth, I think he might've bought it. Then he sold it to this guy. And I think that's how it went. He sold it to this fan and this fan, rather than doing the douchey thing of just putting it on eBay and trying to make a bunch of money from it, mm -hmm. he actually, he put it on consignment at the rock and roll hall of fame. And it was the first nice. piece of heavy metal memorabilia period in the, in the rock and roll hall of fame. Nice. And, and I didn't, there, they, yeah, then they put Dimebag's guitar, and now there's kind of a little heavy metal exhibit there, right? But it started with uh, it started with my bass. So honestly, awesome. I'm already there, so I'm good. You know what I mean? So, and obviously it represents Megadeth, and so by way of this fan being cool, he sort of put he sort of snuck Megadeth in under the wire, you know, which I thought was actually pretty cool, you know. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna um, finish this um, interview up and. I'd like to say thank you for coming on the the same metal podcast today and Welcome. all the best in the future man i'm you know rooting for you and i'm looking Appreciate forward to what you're doing and um yeah take care man
I appreciate it, Mark. See you, man. Yep. Bye. See ya. Bye-bye.